Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeak Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and... Take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH, 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I'm your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Have you ever been to a client site where you need to perform a speed test, or maybe you're at a relative's house? and you're trying to determine what the speed of the internet is there, and you run speed tests, and it gives you a result that mm, just doesn't quite add up. Other sites aren't loading that fast. Something's clearly wrong, but speed test shows that the speed is perfectly okay. Part of that is that speed test partners with ISPs and all sorts of other network providers to try to get as many endpoints as they can. And while that is good, for building a redundant network in which anybody can perform a speed test that doesn't always accurately present uh, valid network metrics for when uh, what the speed is from one computer to another. So perhaps you thought of hosting your own. Well, there's software to do that now, and it's called LibraSpeed. LibraSpeed is self-hosted speed test software, and it enables you to be able to run speed tests from a self-hosted HTML5 interface has a very easy setup. They also have a hosted version that they that they maintain. So if you just want to see what your speed is from your connection to their servers, you can do that. It's mobile friendly, supports PHP, Node, multiple servers, and a lot more. You can learn more at github.com slash Librespeed. And of course, we'll have a link for you in the show notes, which you can find at podcast.asknoahshow.com. But uh, this is a project that stood out to me because more than once I've said to myself, I want to find out what the speed is, for example, from my office to the data center where we host our servers. And when I run speed test, it doesn't do me any good if my local ISP is running a speed uh, a speed test node here in Grand Forks. I need to know what the network connection is across the network. And of course, we have tools uh, on the Linux command line to be able to do those kinds of things uh, like iperf and such. However, uh, sometimes it's nice to be able to just open up a web browser, click on a button, and let the speed test run. The other thing that occurs to me is uh, for IT consulting firms and places where you're trying to drive traffic back to your website because we, you know, at AltaSpeed, for example, we want to build a technology service that people can rely on not only for technical expertise but also from a privacy and security standpoint. And, you know, we don't collect any metrics or any user data, anything like that. And so it seems logical to me then to have a branded version of self-hosted speed tests that we can run on our servers and we can provide that service to our customers. And then we have a real metric of what it looks like getting uh, packets from their individual connection across the internet through all the routers, the same path that they would take for some of the other services that we use, for example, and into our data center. And so LibraSpeed, again, you can learn more at github.com slash LibraSpeed, but these are the kinds of projects that take a service that is being hosted on the internet that's very popular that a lot of people use and then they put the control in the hands of the individual and so we like that would of course like to promote it again you can add your voice to the conversation at 855-450-NOAH that's 1-855-450-6624 the email live at asknoahshow.com if you haven't heard the news Microsoft is making waves this past week by adding GUI support to Linux apps 
on Windows. Microsoft is promising to dramatically improve the Windows sub- subsystem for Linux, also known as WSL, with GUI app support and GPU hardware acceleration. The software giant is adding full Linux kernel to Windows 10 with WSL version 2 later this month, and it's now planning to add support for Linux GUI apps that will run alongside regular Windows apps. This will be the this will be enabled without Windows users having to use the X11 forwarding, and it's mainly designed for developers to run Linux integrated development environments, also known as IDEs, alongside your regular Windows apps. So the good news is we got the subsystem, the Linux subsystem for Windows, and so we were able to run our our favorite command line utilities on windows and that provided a certain level of integration and a certain level of well now i don't have to reboot into my linux side to do those things and that certainly is appreciated even for people like me that don't use windows on a regular basis but we have to support it inside of client environments man just having the ability to ssh into servers right from the windows 10 command line has been a game changer really has because we used to put boxes in each client location that we call point of presence boxes And the whole purpose of those boxes were a computer that we could remotely access that had all of the tools that we needed to be able to administrate their network. And a big reason that oftentimes, well, all the time, if we were putting it in, that point of presence box was a Linux box was because it contained all of the necessary tools that we needed for running things like Nmap and and iPerf and, and so on and so forth. Having the ability to do some of those basic things on Windows has eliminated the need for some of those boxes. And so for that, I'm particularly appreciative. The other thing is there are certain applications, not all, but certain applications that have not been ported to Windows, but are very good applications that run in Linux and they're graphical applications. So I commend Microsoft for their efforts and for what this does get us as Linux users or open source users that want more choice and maybe are using the Windows desktop either because we're required to for work or because uh, for one reason or another, we just choose to, to use that operating system. Now we have a bigger choice in apps. The problem that I have with this and the thing that I don't think is being presented, even by those of us in the open source tech community, we are not looking at what Microsoft's endgame is here and we're not looking at what they're doing to the community at large. They are trying to make the apps that have previously only run on the Linux platform run on their platform. And you have to ask yourself why that is. Notice, Microsoft is not focusing on all desktop applications. They're specifically focusing on the desktop applications that people have left the Windows desktop to go over to the Linux desktop because they needed those tools. And that primarily starts and stops with developers. And I... I, Mostly what I'm interested in doing is just making sure that we approach this with a level head. Microsoft has no interest in your Archbox, no interest in the AOR, no interest in your Ubuntu distro running any smoother. They have no interest in improving GIMP. They don't care how well VLC works. They could care less how well Firefox works. They're not interested in improving Lux, any of those kinds of things. The graphics performance on Linux, all of those problems that people have faced at one time or another that may be thinking to themselves, well, gee, now that we have Microsoft who routinely throws around hundreds of thousands of dollars to solve problems, maybe we'll start to improve the experience that we have on Linux. Not so. We, there's, I've seen the discussion. I've seen the question asked. I've seen it on Reddit. I've seen it in our Telegram group. Should we welcome Microsoft with open arms? And of course, the answer is absolutely yes. We should absolutely welcome Microsoft with open arms. 
the whole point, the whole premise of open source software is that it's welcoming to everybody and we allow anybody to come in and use that software for whatever it is they see fit. We don't pass judgment. The problem here is you have to understand that Microsoft is primarily interested in their bottom line regardless of what that means for any other platform or any other community. And I think a lot of people tout the fact that Microsoft is, quote unquote, the largest contributor to open source, and they very much are. Uh, if you look at pure code contributions, if you look from a monetary perspective, they just up and changed direction. And, you know, uh, there has been quotes in the news uh, where the new CEO of Microsoft has said that Microsoft was on the wrong side of history when they said that Linux and open source was a cancer. And that's a that's a direction that they're now trying to reverse. But the the I, I think the takeaway there is that they've reversed that decision, not because they woke up one morning and said, hey, you know what? It's not a really good model to have everybody tied to our company. If we make a bad decision or if anything ever goes wrong at our company, all of these people who paid good money, hardworking money to purchase our software would be would be out of luck. So that's probably not right. We probably shouldn't do that. That's not the kind of decision that they made. The decision that they're making is we can no longer function selling proprietary software to the market the way that we have before. The market has started to demand that there is longevity in software and that there is not vendor lock-in. And to do that, a lot of people are utilizing open source. And so Microsoft is learning, rather cleverly I might add, to adapt to that world. And more power to them. I hope that Microsoft figures out a good way to make a lot of money on open source. That would be good. Um, I think that what we need to be careful of and what we need to understand is that unless you're a developer whose primary desire is to stay on Windows but wants to use some tools that are available in Linux, understand that Microsoft is not doing this for you. When Microsoft released Teams for Linux, yes, the binary runs in Linux. No, it was not a significant amount of work. To the best of my understanding, the Teams client on Linux is an Electron application. So essentially... It's a Chrome-wrapped version of Teams, and so it's trivial to port that to any particular platform. But more importantly, they've left all of the things that privacy advocates are concerned about in that software, and now it runs on your Linux box. Is that really a win for you? I think if you understand what Microsoft is trying to do, and you understand that, and you're comfortable with, Whatever a company the size of Microsoft decides to do is going to be the direction that the industry goes simply because of Microsoft's size and money. If Microsoft says, here's what we're going to do, here's the, here's the tooling we're going to make, here's what we expect developers to do, there's going to be a large portion of the technical community that's going to follow that lead simply because of Microsoft's size and simply because of the amount of money and resources that Microsoft dumps into that infrastructure. And so what we have to be careful and hesitant about is preserving the parts of open source that made it successful. Because understand something, open source and open source projects and open source competitors to things like Teams succeed precisely because they're, uh, they're, they're divorced of any sort of massive corporate in interest and they're, they're beholden primarily to the needs and desires of the users. And they're also beholden to the feedback of the users because inside of that inside of that small community, if word gets out that a company is doing something unscrupulous, it spreads like wildfire. And then people run away from that project and the news gets out. And so I, I'm, I'm not one of those people that would tell you 
you know, shun Microsoft or stay away from what Microsoft is doing at the code contributions or don't be thankful for what they're doing. I think we should do all of those things. We should just understand what their motivation is and we should understand what are realistic expectations that we can take away from that and what are some realistic expectations of some concerns that people have and how do we best defend those. Again, if you'd like to learn more, we do have the story linked in our show notes. Again, at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our Door 6.0 has been released. Now, they've made some pretty substantial improvements from the 5 uh, from the five series. Uh, one of the big changes is full latency compensation everywhere. Quote, previous versions of our Door have contained level, various levels and kinds of compensation for latency in signal processing flow. Our Doer 6.0 is now absolutely fully compensated for latency during any signal pathway. Buses, tracks, plugins, sends, inserts, returns. No matter how you route signals within and external to our Doer, everything will be fully compensated for and aligned with the sample accuracy. They've also uh, improved the global VeriSpeed. Uh, quote, previous versions of our Doer implemented VeriSpeed using specific DSP. Now, these are the plugins that allow you to... Um, allow you to sweeten the sound or use a third-party system to modify the sound um, that our doer didn't create. It can tie into those DSPs. Our doer 6.0 now contains high-quality resampling engines at its core to deal with VeriSpeed, a design that makes the core of our doer code much more simpler and ensures that MIDI tracks will have their audio output, if any, handled correctly. This also lays the groundwork for the future version of our doer to become a sample rate agnostic. And then my favorite feature that they've added is cue monitoring. Previous versions of Adur allowed you to monitor your signal coming from the disk or the signal coming from inputs, but not both. Adur 6.0 now provides the ability to monitor any combination, often called queue monitoring. You can hear the existing data from disk while also listening to the input signal. This is particularly useful for MIDI tracks, where you can now hear yourself performing or adding new material while a track is playing in the existing material behind you. They have a couple of other uh, additions. They added... Also support uh, for separate devices for input and output. They also have lists for sub-devices, sometimes useful for picking a specific set of inputs and outputs. So, for example, Focusrite makes some U- some fantastic USB audio interfaces. Um, and so the entry-level ones have usually two channels or one channel on them. When you start getting into the higher models, they have six and eight channels. Uh, so six and eight inputs and, and then a host of outputs. And what this allows you to do is you can pick, you know, for example, this particular interface, input one is the guitar, this particular interface, input two is the drums or the keyboard or whatever, so on and so forth, and will allow you to do those kinds of multi-track recording on an interface that has multiple inputs and outputs. They also have a virtual MIDI keyboard uh, with a rich implementation that can be used to deliver complex MIDI to any part of our doer. Now, my personal opinion here. I think that anytime you're going to use MIDI um, to generate any sort of, uh, of audio sounds, you really should be going through a synthesizer. Uh, I think that if you, when you start getting into music production, what you'll find is companies like Roland have spent years sampling the best uh, instruments out there and creating the best sounds out there. And so most professionals, if they're producing music based on MIDI, they're usually using um, outboard synthesizers or a software synthesizers that they purchase. But in any event, it's a third party thing. It's not usually built in um, to your editor. Uh, they also have a surface support. So the new surfaces that they support are the launch control XL, the fader port 16 fader port second generation. 
Nectar, Panorama, the Contour Designs Shuttle Pro and Shuttle Express, and the Behringer X-Touch and X-Touch Compact. Now, if you're not familiar with what these are, these are physical mixer surfaces that you can use, and essentially, um, they operate uh, much the same way the the um, soundboard that works here in the studio does, which is it's essentially a glorified USB keyboard and mouse that allows you to have some physical control over the uh, the audio channels and the the, the faders that are tied into our door. And I, th- I think that's an important improvement primarily because when you have people that are coming from a, an analog based workflow or have worked in a studio where they're used to having, putting their finger on a fader and pulling it down and, and, and potting it up. Um, when you try to go from doing things that way to putting your arrow over something and just scrolling to come down or, or, or up, uh, you'll find that it's very unintuitive and it's hard to be very precise unless you have a really good mouse. And so I'm happy to see that they're really expanding the amount of physical control surfaces that you can use. I'm also happy to see that the the range of cost of these devices is is pretty drastic. You can you can get into it for just a couple of hundred dollars or you can go up to things like the Behringer X-Touch and X-Touch Compact, which are essentially um, – control surfaces of the X32 mixer, which is Behringer's digital mixer, and you're able to tie that into Ardour. So if I ever have an opportunity to get my hands on any of those and play with that, I certainly would because I think that's a, uh, it's a, it's a pretty big improvement and, and, um, and really gives the software some teeth uh, for getting into the professional world. I think if you're, if you're running a studio, uh, even if it's a small studio, you're unlikely to want to be able to do everything just with the keyboard and mouse. You're going to want some of those control surfaces. Linus Torvalds has switched to Team Red. Uh, this was part of the end of, of one of his mailing releases um, in, the, in the Linux kernel mailing list. Quote, in fact, the biggest excitement this week for me was that I upgraded my main machine. And for the first time in about 15 years, my desktop isn't Intel-based. No, I didn't switch to ARM just yet, but I'm now rocking an AMD Threadripper 3970X. My all-mode-config test builds are now three times faster than they used to be, which doesn't matter so much right now during the calming period, but I will certainly definitely notice the difference when I upgrade during the next merge window. And a couple things there of note. So first off, uh, it is interesting to me that AMD is starting to gain more mainline recognition. For a long time, when AMD Threadripper and Ryzen had come out, the, the, the word on the street or the general knowledge was if you were doing anything mission critical, you still stuck with Intel because you wanted the reliability of Intel and you wanted the brand history of Intel. If you wanted to try to eke out as much performance as possible and you were okay doing a little bit of troubleshooting, then it was okay to kind of venture into Ryzen. And much like Linus's experience, I've also switched over to to a to an AMD system. I have a Ryzen system now that runs in my basement. And I have to tell you what, my issues have gone from minimal to non-existent. I had issues under GNOME where the GNOME desktop would lock up, and I typically attributed that to the fact that the entire GNOME desktop was running on under a single processor thread. But then when I switched over to Kubuntu and I was using the KDE desktop environment, I still noticed that my uh, my KDE applet bars would lock up every once in a while. And having switched over to AMD, that problem has entirely gone away. Um, and so I'm, uh, you know, this is this is not surprising to me that Linus is following suit. What will be interesting to see is how long it takes this to start get, making its way into industry. Again, eight fifty five four fifty Noah. That's one eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email 
live at asknoahshow.com. Computer Kid joins us in our interactive mumble room. Hey, Computer Kid, welcome to the show. Hey, Noah, how are you doing? Do I sound okay? You sound great. How can I help? So I have a laptop with multiple disks, and I run Arch, by the way. I'm wondering whether there's any reason I should shy away from ZFS or ButterFS. I would like to move one of to one of them take advantage of the snapshot feature and redundancy since I have multiple disks in this laptop. And I was just wondering if you have any specific reasons I should not go with one or the other. Yeah, so I would I would strongly suggest that you uh that you move closer towards ZFS and and shy away from ButterFS and here's why. Um ButterFS was was designed originally as a Linux alternative to to the BSD's ZFS. And it was made with a lot of the same ideas and goals in mind, a very redundant file system that would allow for snapshotting, the ability to roll back to any one of those snapshots to have a little bit better data integrity, so on and so forth, right? And what they found as they were developing ButterFS where there was there were some problems with it that they couldn't really easily solve. And so as it stands, to the best of my knowledge, even today, you want to be careful if you use ButterFS that you don't fill it past a certain point. Um, that is to say, you want to keep the drive under, and I don't, you'd have, you should look it up, but it's something like 85%, 90%, you want to keep the drive below that. Now, in a, you know, truth be told, any hard drive, any file system, you really don't want to push the drive to the limit if you can avoid it. But in ButterFS's case specifically, you will run into data loss if you do so. Um, ZFS doesn't have that issue. You'll get a warning if you go above a certain threshold, but ZFS has been around much longer. It also has a, a, a wider contributor base, and because they are rebasing on Z open ZFS and trying to streamline that code uh, up and down, what you're finding is that the integration into Linux now is actually very stable and is production ready. Um, the latest LTS of Ubuntu shipped with ZFS and you have the opportunity now to install uh, Ubuntu on ZFS just by clicking a radio button, which tells me that we're getting ever so closer to being able to use ZFS full time on Linux. So if I was going to venture out today and try a file system, particularly if it was on a system I, I really cared about the data, it would be ZFS, no doubt. Okay, sounds good. Um, do you mind if I throw in one more question while I'm here? Yeah, you bet. Do you have any experience with static website generators like Hugo or Gatsby, I believe it's called? I do. We're using, um, I can't remember, I think it's Hugo for the AltaSpeed site, and I have been a real fan of it, and I'll tell you why. Uh, when you go into, when you try to do dynamic sites like WordPress and such, they present a number of different security vulnerabilities that have to be addressed. And it's and security, as always, is a moving target. And so you can't just address them and then let it go. What you end up having to do is constantly watch, patch, watch, patch, watch, patch. The nice thing about static generators are, like Hugo are is you don't have that concern. Essentially, you can make the change dynamically. And then what happens is Hugo generates a static site that you use that doesn't. It's just basically HTML. Um, a lot of them uh, uh, support the ability to write the site or write portions of the site in Markdown and then have that rendered as HTML5, which I like because that's the way that we do show notes. And so it's a very easy way to shorthand to write out a specific por portion of the site or uh, or brainstorm something out and then copy that in and see how it would render. Um, so for both of those reasons, I'm a big fan of static generated site. Hugo's by far probably the most popular one and probably the one that I would I would tell you to start with. Um, but you'll find that all of them have their advantages and disadvantages. 
Okay, thank you. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for joining us. 855-450-NOAA. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Audacity, a new version of Audacity is out. If uh, if Ardour wasn't for you, then I highly suggest you check out Audacity. Now, they've temporarily reinstated the 2.3.3 release for downloads while they investigate a serious bug that affected 2.4.0 on Windows, Mac, and Linux. The bug causes loss or corruption of audio, but they currently believe that it only happens if you have two projects open at the same time and paste audio from one project into the other. And so if if you uh, if you're on 2.3, uh, excuse me, if you're on 2.4, um, you'll want to not uh, you'll not want to not have two simultaneous programs open. Um, and apart from that, you'll want to continue to be on the 2.3.3 release. I have downloaded 2.4 and was playing with it primarily because I wanted to check out their new time toolbar, and uh, they've split the recording and playback time off selection toolbar that can now be dragged and you can make it larger and they say that that's particularly useful for people that are recording themselves and playing a musical instrument where they typically have to be further from the screen and record and uh and playing and and they'll benefit from a a larger numerical display for me uh it's really useful because when we're recording shows or recording interviews it's nice to be able to look across the room and instantly see what uh where we are in the in the recording they've introduced multi-views and added a new optional mode for viewing audio in the new mode you're able to see both the waveform and the spectrograph at the same time previously you'd have to switch back between one and the other uh you couldn't have both and i i would still to this day argue that audacity is probably one of the best audio editing programs out there particularly if you're just getting started with recording producing or editing audio um, the it has a very simple user interface. It has a very low learning curve. It's literally as simple as dragging a piece of audio in or pressing record to record a new piece of audio and then using the tools to select, delete, so on and so forth. And their plugins are actually very good. I I still think that Audacity has probably one of the best noise reduction plugins out there. In typical open source fashion, it's a little strange to use. You have to select the audio that you want to process, then you go up and select noise reduction, you click on get profile, and that will try to identify where the where the noise is, then you go back up into the, the plugins again, go back to the noise reduction, and then click, you know, reduce noise, and it will go and pull it out. And what I found is it it, it, it does, it does a very good job and arguably better than some of the proprietary alternatives out there. And um, and anybody can get started with it. It's it's very simple. So I even though we have access to more powerful tools, I still find myself going back to Audacity for most of my editing because it just is a lean, mean cutting machine. Um, and it has the ability to grow when you do. So when you want to get into multi-track recording, when you want to get into doing some effects and some processing, when you want to get into EQ or compression, those kinds of things. Audacity is going to be ready to, to handle all of that. And then, of course, if you start getting into really complex stuff, then you're going to want to go to a full-on DAW uh, like Ardour. But if you're just getting started or if you're a professional that doesn't primarily live in the editor, you're just using it as an auxiliary tool, it doesn't get much better than Audacity. And so I'd invite you to check out uh, uh, 2.3.3 for sure and uh, the 2.4 release if you don't mind... Uh, putting up uh, with a, with being a little extra cautious. Again, open phones, 855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. You can also join us in our interactive mumble room. Get you slightly better 
audio quality, and the ability to join from your computer. With the pandemic of COVID-19, there are a myriad of privacy concerns that have started to surface. And uh, the first one that we'll talk about is the pandemic. Now, this is a documentary, a supposed documentary, that had some questionable science around it. And as it was released onto the Internet, no, a number of different large technical companies uh, targeted them to try to remove it from the Internet. Now, that doesn't entirely surprise me because we have, if you're in the tech space for any amount of time, you deal with the fact that various different social platforms will uh, will deplatform people for numerous reasons. The thing that made the, the pandemic, um, I guess, uh, censorship so unique was the fact that they even went as far as to pull files from Google Drive, um, which is something that we'd not seen before. So first thing to note, Google Drive is not a social media platform, nor is it set up uh, to act like a social media program. And because of that, they don't have a lot of the controls in place that uh, social media companies have uh, because they don't expect to face the same problems that social media companies expect to face. A lot of companies are classifying this as weaponizing social media to amplify dangerous content. And I think that's a really dangerous way to frame a conversation because you're, you're no longer attacking the content of the, uh, of the, of the production or the content of the, of the post. Now you're starting to attack the very idea that, people have differing opinions or they come at it from different perspectives. And um, so essentially what, what had happened was they created this documentary called Plandemic and they tried to share it on normal social media platforms and they got deplatformed. So what it went to was they uploaded a trailer for the documentary onto Google drive and then started sharing the link around. And what ended up happening was, uh, TikTok and Facebook and Twitter and all of these places uh, started and YouTube started to scrub this link for this Google Drive uh, link down until the Washington Post actually came out and wrote a piece where this video then went viral. And at that point, uh, Google themselves pulled the Google Drive uh, link down. Quote, it went viral last week, eventually becoming one of YouTube's top trending videos, according to social media research Aaron Gallagher. The video surged on YouTube as people clicked through the embedded links to Facebook groups dedicated to opposing vaccines and the conspiracy theories. Gallagher said, soon after it went viral, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter banned the video on the grounds that it contained misinformation about the virus and could cause real-world harm and an immediate threat to public health. TikTok, which also prohibits prohibits harmful misinformation about COVID-19 banded as well. A spokesperson said that the company will take down content that they dispute the existence of COVID-19 as well as content that discourages people from seeking medical treatment, promotes medically unsubstantiated treatment methods, or disputes the efficacy of social distancing guidelines. Now here's, let's start with this. I am not advocating for the veracity or uh, trying to dispel the claims made in this documentary. I, to be fair, I haven't even seen it, nor do I really care to see it. Um, I, I, I did find somebody that managed to save a copy of it, and so I might check it out just to, just to kind of see what all the, the, the fuss is about. But it certainly wouldn't be the place I would go to get reputable information about a health pandemic. I wouldn't go to an independent filmmaker who's trying to make a point and take that 
as my source for scientific information. But I, I shouldn't have to be the one to tell you that you cannot stop information from spreading on the Internet. It's not technically possible, nor is it a worthwhile cause for trying. You cannot, you cannot do it because there are so many redundant copies of the same file and file sharing has become so simplistic and so easy and so fast. And there's so many different avenues to do it that it's it's like playing whack-a-mole. I mean, you, 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 you smack one down and another one pops back up. Second of all, it's a fool's errand to try to stop people from believing crazy stuff if they're really intent on believing it. What's the old saying? Uh, a, a fool convinced against himself is of the same opinion. Uh, you can't uh, butcher the quote, but you cannot convince people that are that are absolutely convinced this is truth and you try to tell them otherwise they're not open to hearing it. And I don't care what the information is because I'm going to critically think about it myself. Here's fools believe every word they hear, but wise people think carefully about everything. I got that quote perfect. You have a real problem when you try to get unpopular information out there and it becomes censored. And again, I'm not talking about the veracity of the information. I'm talking about the very fact that there are groups of people that see information floating around the Internet and they go, you can't say that. I don't agree with it. I don't think you're right. And that very premise means that popular information is going to be the information that is promoted and unpopular information is going to be the information that's suppressed. And that very model is very concerning to me because, first of all, it's the antithesis of why we have the free Internet. I certainly don't agree. I certainly don't like everything I come across on the Internet, but I like the fact that it's an open forum to do so. I like the fact that when I go to Reddit and somebody makes a, a very audacious claim that isn't really backed up by science, isn't really backed up uh, with good research, a bunch of people comment on it and tell you, why that's inaccurate, why that's wrong, and then they cite their sources. And oftentimes you'll hear people or you'll see people say, hey, you made this claim. I don't find any information to back this up. I've looked. I can't find where you're getting your sources. Where are you getting this information from? And anybody with two brain cells to rub together can read through one of those threads and determine where the people are who know what they're talking about and who the people are that are just kind of making it up. And, and there are gaps in their story. Quote, the video's caption also includes a prominent link to the CDC website, a tactic that's said to meant to game YouTube's algorithms, which are currently prioritizing content that links to the CDC. And this is, again, where I, I think companies trying to introduce their own politics into and, and meld it with the technology and it fails flat on its face. Perhaps we should stop trying to decide what people are searching for and what people want to see and let YouTube do the thing that it's designed to do, which is let the most popular video rise to the top, whatever that is. That's more or less the standard that Reddit goes through minus, you know, the community moderators inside of the given community are able to pull stuff out. But if there's an entire community that's dedicated to um, survivalist or prepping, those are some of the ones that where you get some of the, the more out there posts. But those people expound their views and they, they explain why they think they believe those things and they give sources to cite those that information. And you can decide for yourself the veracity of their claims and what they're suggesting. But people should be on these platforms to get access to all of the content and they should be able to decide for themselves what is valid or unsubstantiated. And the other side of that, though, the other side of that is these companies are not breaking any laws. 
These companies, despite what the Internet is saying, are not violating anybody's First Amendment right. If you go on YouTube, you submit yourself to the terms and services of YouTube. If you make a post on Facebook, you submit to the privacy policy and the posting policies that Facebook decides. And if you don't like that, then you shouldn't use their services. And we have advocated for a long time that people should not be primarily using social media to get a particular message out there or for that to be their main point of contact. We consult with churches all the time and we consult with businesses all the time. And the question comes up every time they're going to do a live streaming event. Well, how do we get it on Facebook? How do we get it on YouTube? How do we go to Twitch? And we tell them the same thing. We would suggest that you go to a CDN from the CDN. You publish to your website as well as Facebook, Twitch, tube, wherever. Why should we do that? That's going to cost more money. That introduces more complexity. Well, because you want to direct your listeners or your viewers to the content that's on your own site, an infrastructure that you control, and you're going to need a CDN to do it anyway because you don't want a bunch of people pulling down the stream directly from your site or from your source. So you're going to run through a CDN anyway, and the CDN that we use is Scale Engine, and they support for free, by the way, pushing to Facebook, Twitch, uh, YouTube, so on and so forth. And so it becomes trivial to push those places. That The key difference between pushing to your to a CDN that is embedded on your own site and pushing directly to one of these platforms is when one of these platforms decides that they don't like your content and they pull you down, now all of a sudden you're fighting an uphill battle because all of the people that came to find you came to YouTube or came to Facebook or came to Twitter or came to Twitch and now they can't find you and you don't have a soft landing spot for them to go to next. And so now you're fighting uphill with algorithms and fighting uphill with content policy, so on and so forth. If you had hosted your own data to begin with, you wouldn't have that problem. The thing that really befuddles me and the, 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 the thing that caught my attention with this particular story, because again, the social media stuff, Facebook's been doing that for years. Twitter's been doing that for years. YouTube has been doing that you know, for years. Doesn't really surprise me. But Google Drive? Man, that's a, that's a game changer. There's a lot of people and a lot of businesses that live on Google Drive and live on the Google infrastructure. And when Google sells you a G Suite subscription, the idea is, and the marketing is, that this is just as good as your own infrastructure. In fact, it's better because it's backed up by all of Google's redundancy. So you install this little client on here, you drop your files in there, don't have to worry about malware, don't have to worry about cryptoware, you lose your files, don't worry about that ZFS rollback, you just log into Google Drive and get, a, get an older copy, that's no problem, we can handle that, we can deal with that. Google will take care of that for you. They offer it as this drop-in, ready-to-go solution, and it's anything but. This is terrifying because it means that Google is going through your files, the stuff that you store on Google, and making a decision on whether or not you should have that data. That I just I cannot begin to comprehend why somebody would want to store their data in a place that would do this to them. And then... You know, you put the work into into making this documentary, again, not saying that anybody agrees or disagrees with the content of it, but you put the undeniable amount of effort into creating this piece, and now you can't even put it up on the internet for people to download it because somebody decided it was a bad idea. Now, 2Bit in the chat room says that they've been doing this for a while. I was aware of some scripts that they had that searched through Google Drive for copywritten music, and they were trying to eliminate sharing music that way, but I was not aware that on pure social pressure or government pressure, 
to, hey, we don't think this view should be out there. We think this view is dangerous. You should remove this person's ability to say that. Again, I can kind of understand where they're coming from with Facebook and, and YouTube because they are, they're, the pressure is being put on them by governments to clean up their platform and to restrict what people can say. But Google Drive, something that people pay for and store data on, that seems like that's a whole new level. Computer Kid in the chat room says people do it because they don't, they don't know, they don't care, it's cheap and easy. And what I would tell you to that is I think part of it is education, right? Um, Andy Yen, when he was on last from Proton Mail, we talked about the advent of, of, of Proton Drive and that that's coming in the near future. That's going to be the kind of service that's going to allow people to store and share data anonymously. And, of course, when you come to backup, then you have uh, you know sites like Tarsnap and so on and so forth. And, of course, if you want to self-host it, you have all sorts of options. You have um, C-File and, and NextCloud and so on and so forth. Um, but and, and to be clear, had they been doing this, had they just set up a C-File server, for example, uploaded their documentary and just said people can download it, I'm not sure there would have been a, a big way for them to stop it. The problem, of course, becomes in infrastructure, because if you have a C-File instance, that's great. Well, you have a few hundred people that are downloading that file. But if it really takes off and you start getting thousands and thousands of people, well, now you have to know how to set up high availability. Now you have to know how to get that computer into a data center. Now you have to, I mean, there's a whole bunch of technical expertise that comes in. And we are losing the ability to do that ourselves because we are constantly moving our data to the cloud, also known as somebody else's computer. And so this should be a wake-up call. If you're the kind of person that has all of their family photos stored on Google Drive, that has all of their, if you make content and you're storing that stuff on Google Drive, just be aware that if the tide changes and your view becomes unpopular or your content becomes unpopular or what you're doing becomes unpopular, that these sites have the ability to pull your stuff down and prevent you from sharing it. Again, 855-450-NOAH, that's 1-855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. Google continues, uh, Google and Apple announced this week that they are going to try to attack the contact tracing problem that we face as a society thanks to COVID-19. Now, I want to be clear. COVID has some very potentially serious effects to include dying, and I don't want to underscore how important it is to help control the spread of disease and people's willingness to cooperate with public health officials to help them determine who may be at risk and who they may have come in contact with. That said, at the end of the day, at least here in the United States, that choice resides with you, the individual, and you and you alone get to choose who you want to share your information with. The problem at the end of the day comes down to the fact that we have purchased technology. We activate this technology. We keep it honest 24-7. Um, we incorporate things like location and Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and, and all of these technologies that make our life more convenient but have been used in the background for a long time to collect information about us. And in the past, what has happened is tech companies have been quick to do what governments have asked. And what happens then, a Snowden comes out and leaks the information or an FBI case comes to light, and all of a sudden, uh, the government is nowhere to be found, and local authorities are nowhere to be found, and everybody is standing there looking at Apple and Google going, how did we get here? Why did you give all of our information away? And then all of a sudden, they have a privacy nightmare. So this time, when governments came to Google and Apple, and they said, hey, we want your help to figure out what we're going to do 
uh, for this COVID thing, you have the technology that's already in everybody's pocket. It already has location data. We already have the ability to talk to other devices. So it should make contact tracing a piece of cake. We can just dump all of that information into a big central database and give public health officials and governments the ability to access it. And that will be fine. And Google and Apple said no. They said absolutely not. We're not going to do it that way. And this comes as a pretty stark difference to what Google and Apple's answer has been in the past. This time, Google and Apple kind of held off and eventually came up with a plan that they have announced uh, that incorporates an API system that uses the Bluetooth chip inside of your phone to communicate with other nearby phones that also have uh, that are running uh, Android or iOS. And these Bluetooth chips will talk to each other and then they will they will do a key exchange. And so it's anonymous information at first. It's just tied to a unique key identifier. And then what they're doing is they're giving individual apps access to that API. So, for example, if North Dakota in in my home state decides and has rolled out what they call the Care 19 app, you install that app. Instead of that app trying to do all of this contact tracing itself, it relies on this API and, and talks to the API and says, okay, what phones have I been in contact with? And it gives the list of all those unique keys, Bluetooth uh, key exchanges that have occurred. And then it references uh, if somebody is known to be infected or somebody becomes infected, that person can say, hey, I'm willing to share the fact that I, w- I am infected and everybody that had my key exchange in the last two weeks should be notified. And no matter, and let's say I came in contact with somebody that was from the state of Minnesota, for example, uh, that person, even though we're across state lines and maybe that person had in, an iOS device and I had an Android device, because we were in the same place at the same time, our phones exchanged a key exchange. And because I allowed that information to be sent to my Care 19 app that North Dakota put out, that information is then uh, is then sent over across Google and Apple's API to the iPhone user that says, hey, you were in contact with this guy and he tested positive, so you might want to get checked or be aware of that as well. And what what governments didn't like about that I should start with what they did like about that. They liked the interoperability. But what they didn't like about that was it was not centralized. Essentially, all of this data is residing on the individual user's phone. And people who tested positive have to choose to share that info. And so very quickly, the debate became about centralized versus decentralized. Uh, How many people... Do How do you get that many people to willingly participate in a program? Because it's only going to it's only going to exchange keys if the phone is on, if the phone is sleeping or the screen is off, the key exchange is not occurring. And um, basically what health officials said was that's not that's useless to us. We don't want that. And governments started to pressure Google and Apple to do something different. Uh, And so Google came back and said, no, we are going to use this decentralized API approach. And government and the the French and German government said, no, we definitely want you to dump all of this stuff into a central database that we can get to it. And what happened over time uh, is they well, so first Google released a statement and said our technology is designed to make these apps work better. Each user gets to decide whether or not to opt in and to expose notifications. The system does not collect or use the location information collected from the device. And if a person is diagnosed with COVID-19, it's up to them whether or not they want to report it to the public health app. User adoption is key to success. And we believe that strong privacy protections are the best way to encourage use of these apps. And this, they're absolutely right. Google in their press release is absolutely right. 
if they didn't do it this way, if they had some sort of central database, I would be on this program right now telling you to stay as far away from this app as possible. Instead, what I'm going to tell you to do is proceed with an abundance of caution. Because remember, you can still wind up at the, at the same end goal of one central database if everybody chooses to publish their information to everybody else. Once government agencies have access to that information, of course, they can store it themselves. But at least the decision starts with you and you get to decide. Quote, over two dozen countries have already released their own contact tracing apps, but the Apple Google release is expected to dramatically accelerate the process. Their partnership means that all smartphones worldwide will be able to detect each other and share information about potential exposure about the disease. Early last month, German-led group pushed ahead with a toolkit developed alongside 130 tech experts across eight countries to build apps that could detect potential infections. Critically, the plan was... The plan allowed for placing everyone's data on a central server and giving epidemiologists and policymakers access to some of the information to analyze how the virus spread nationwide. Google and Apple announced on April 10th that they had partnered on software that would allow government-backed apps to trace potential infections even while running in the background of people's smartphones. But the approach relied on data remaining, for the most part, on people's devices. Both companies refused to open their technology to governments pushing for centralized data storage, a strategy that they considered valuable or vulnerable, excuse me, to state snooping. And what eventually happened was Germany capitulated and started to back the Google way of doing things, the the uh, the decentralized approach. The French government dug their heels in and said, nope, no way. We want a central database system. We're going to we're going to move ahead no matter what. And France did move ahead with the app. um, But by the government's own admission, it wouldn't fully function with Apple and Google's devices because it would switch off when the phones were in sleep mode. And they considered that to be a major stumbling block for the app's primary goal of tracing all potential encounters with infected people. On April 20th, they tried again to ask uh, Google and Apple to find a workaround. And again, uh, both Google and Apple said, no, we are not going to participate in a centralized data uh, storage approach. It has to be decentralized. You have to go through our API. And so uh, and and so I, I guess really what I took away from, from the story is, first of all, thank you, Google and Apple, finally, for taking a stand for their customers and their consumers. And I think the big reason that they decided to go that route, or I think the big thing that made the difference to them was for the first time, they are going to they're going to stand by the people who buy their products and not by the government agencies and and, and pressuring uh, entities that want to take advantage of their customers. And I think they figured out that every time they do that, every time they violate a customer's privacy, it costs them major bucks because they have to go on this campaign to convince people to trust their platforms again. And this is a major problem. And it's one of the things that I think uh, our economy here in the United States does very well because it promotes people to be able to say, hey, if you're not going to value my privacy, then I'm just going to go over and use a yellow phone or I'm going to go over and use the the uh, the Ports uh, version of uh, of a mobile operating system. I just won't use Android. And thanks to to Anbox and, and similar technologies, we have the ability to run Android apps inside of those third-party operating systems. So there's there's a very low barrier to entry if you're a person that's actually trying to get away from, from these kinds of tracking uh, apparatuses. And Google has to do something to convince you to stay and convince other people to stay. And so this is their first stand saying we're absolutely not going to budge. And I have a hard time faulting Google for the position that they've taken because they are opening the the use of the technology for people that want to use 
um, the the built-in technology that everybody carries to help fight the disease. And at the same time, they're putting the choice back where it belongs, which is in the individual user's pocket. So what I would tell you is, and this is the metric I'm going off of, I've looked at my state's um, Care 19 app or the, the, the app that they're using for contact tracing. I've read the policy. I'm personally not comfortable with the way that North Dakota has implemented it, so I have not installed it and will not install it. But I would encourage you to look at what your state has done or what your country has done. And if you feel comfortable with it, it might be a far, well, it is a far more efficient way to track contact tracing as opposed to the the manual method, which is they sit you down with a phone call and they say, Tell us everywhere you've been for the last two weeks. Well, I was at grocery shopping. Well, what did you buy? Well, I, I bought Swiss rolls. Okay, what aisle were those in? You know, it's just ridiculous. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Dennis writes in and says, Hey, Noah, I live in the woods and I rely totally on my AT&T wireless hotspot for our internet. I have a rare unlimited account, so it's a great solution. I'm currently using Velocity Hotspot, but I really want more router control. I've looked at the Netgear Nighthawk, but it's a bit out of my budget. Is there a simple way to allow a basic home router to handle all of my network traffic? I want to access things like OpenDNS, Mac filtering, those kinds of things. Uh, What kind of solution would you suggest to accomplish this? Love the show. Thank you for the time, Dennis. So there's a number of different ways that you uh, you can solve this problem. The first is what we would recommend for any business that was doing it. This is the quote-unquote right way to solve this problem. Um, And that's to use a device called a CradlePoint. And CradlePoint is a company that makes routers specifically designed for LTE. And so the way the CradlePoint works is you plug a LTE USB modem into the back of the uh, CradlePoint router, and that becomes the WAN connection. And then you have a perfectly functional, normal router that has DHCP and DNS and all of the things that you would expect to be able to control and 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 be able to monkey over. Now, you're right. The Nighthawk does most of that. However, I will tell you, the Nighthawk, when you get above like five or six clients, um, starts to starts to die out because it's just, the processor just isn't really built for it. So my primary um, interest in the Nighthawk, and I do have one and I really like it, but my primary interest in that device is the fact that it has a wired Ethernet jack on it and has the ability to, if you log into the web interface, you can choose to go into bridge mode, which will give you a public IP address on that physical uh, on that physical wire. And so it essentially the way I look at that device is I look at it as an LTE cable modem. That's kind of how it functions. And so what we do is we take that in our emergency kit when a hotel or a business goes down, they don't have internet, we bring that Nighthawk in, and we plug it into their existing router, to the WAN port of their existing router. And as far as they're concerned, if it's PFSense or Microtech, uh, that is handling all of the DHCP leases and the NAT and all of that. So the user doesn't really notice any different, except maybe the internet's a little bit slower. Um, the other way that you could go about that, if you're looking for a poor man's hack, the other way that you could do that is if you have a spare laptop that has uh, a Linux distro installed, you can plug the, uh, you can connect Wi-Fi to your hotspot. Then you can go into your network connections and click share this network connection. And what what it will do is it will turn your wired inter- your wired Ethernet uh, adapter on your laptop into a the the outer port of a uh, or LAN port I should say of a router and will allow you to share that internet connection. Then from there, of course, you can pull it into a traditional w- router like a Microtech or a, a PFSense or a Linksys or whatever you want. And, and use it for there. Now, I've done that a couple of times. I've done a show from the road or something like that, and I need to be on Wi-Fi, but our little broadcast unit has to connect uh, over Ethernet. 
Um, so that's that's kind of the poor man's way to do it. Of course, if you do anything that requires specific NAT rules, that's going to be problematic for you. So the best solution, of course, is to use something like a cradle point or uh, Microtech can do kind of the same thing and where you can plug a USB uh, LT modem in. Hopefully that helps. If not, send me an email back. Hey, the Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You want to catch more? AskNoahShow.com. Ask Noah Show.